We are at the end of our summer series on the one another commands of the New Testament. So this is the last one. There is actually a lot more commands. We only dealt with a dozen of them. And uh, depending on what version you're using and who's counting, they're somewhere between 40 and 60. Um, but uh, today we're going to look at First uh, Thessalonians 5, verses 11 to 18. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles or on your device or whatever it is that you have and uh, so that you can follow along. Um, and with today we're going to talk about building up one another. So let us turn there. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11 to 18. Somehow tangled here. Okay. Please listen carefully. As always, this is God's word. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to the last one of all the one another commands we've looked at this summer. And this one's a little hard because it summarizes all the rest of them. So we tend to simply overlook it. So we pray that today we would learn to look at it deeply we'd listen carefully and we would follow the one who enables us to obey this command and who, through his spirit, makes us people who love to build up one another. Thank you that today we are again learning from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, and in so doing, demonstrate our love for your church. And so we pray, speak through 1 Thessalonians 5 this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. What should I do? That's a question we ask ourselves a lot. From uh, eating breakfast in the morning, what should I eat? To driving to the store, what road should I take? To choosing a career, where should I work? to purchasing a home, where should I live? We can't get away from the what should I do question. And sometimes that can cause a lot of anxiety because we don't always know what we should do. At the same time, however, God has told us what we should do. And what we should do is contained in his word. And I know you're thinking, no, the Bible doesn't tell us what we should eat for breakfast. Or does it? Well, our uh, Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6, says that we acknowledge that there are some circumstances common 
to human actions and societies that are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So what kinds of circumstances common to human actions are to be ordered according to the general rules of the word? Well, let's take the example of breakfast. Taking care of our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit certainly has implications for what kind of food we eat. So we see that 1 Corinthians 6, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. You are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. And then in 1 Corinthians 10 we read, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in some way, the Bible gives us guidance on what to eat and how to eat it. Same kind of reasoning from scripture can be used for all of the other questions. What road should I take? Well, whatever road you decide on, commit your way to the Lord. Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Where should I work? Well, wherever you work, do your job with all your heart, Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. Where should I live? Well, wherever you choose to live, make it your goal to live a peaceful and quiet life as you shine as a light in the world. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. This is sort of the anti-social media verse and uh, to work with your hands as we instructed you. So God has given us the freedom to choose which road, which food, which job, but he's given us parameters about how to choose and more than that, how to act once we've made our choice. He's gifted us with faith and reason to live in this world. And we're called to trust him as we make both big and small decisions because though he doesn't often tell us what, who, or where, he does tell us how. Perhaps we should consider whether we're doing what God has already called us to do before wondering about the things he's left open for us to decide. When we seek to do what scripture says is God's will for our life, the decisions we have to make become easier because we're already trusting in the Lord rather than in ourselves. And God has given us a tremendous amount of freedom to make decisions as we trust him every step along the way. And all of these one another commands that we've been talking about all summer, that we've been looking at for the last three months, are things that God tells us to do. What were all those commands? Outdo one another in showing honor, love one another, live in harmony with one another, welcome one another, instruct one another, care for one another, serve one another, forgive one another, show hospitality to one another, encourage one another in today's command to build up one another, and I think I skipped one. But that's okay. Because those are still a lot of things to do. 
The Bible is full of things to do. Usually we call them commands. But this passage is not just a lot of do's and don'ts, but it is a presentation of what gospel life should look like. The way brothers and sisters should live together in the church because they have been united to Christ. This is what life should look like because of the gospel. So today we've come to our last passage in the series and as we read it, we ask, what are we to do? Verse 11, what are we to do? Now, John Stott, who's one of my favorite uh, writers with the Lord now, uh, in his wonderful commentary on this passage, calls this section, how to be a gospel church. We want to be a gospel church. We want uh, to be a gospel church, of course, because that means that we're a church that's been brought together by the gospel. We wouldn't be part of this congregation if it were not for the grace of God given to us in the gospel, were it not for our response to the claims of the gospel. And what that means is we realize that God is our maker. He made us and we owe him our worship. We also realize that sin is our failure. We have sinned and rebelled against God and we deserve his condemnation. However, we then realize that Christ is our savior, the only savior there is who came to die in our place that we might be reconciled to God. Furthermore, we recognize that faith is the answer to God's free offer of the gospel, that we must receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel and that new life then flows from that saving faith. So it's all of grace from beginning to end for us to live that new life where we've been freed from the bondage of sin. All of that is what brings the church together. So the gospel brings us together as a church, but it also shapes our life as a church. And there are different ways the gospel shapes our life in the church. So hang on, this is... Hopefully that's better. Uh, so as uh, I said before, if we count all those one another commands, if we count everything we just read in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, there are a bunch of do's in this passage. These are gospel exhortations for life together as a church. But I want you to notice there's something very unique about them. Not one of these is to be obeyed all by yourself. You know, if I were giving you exhortations for the Christian life, which is just another way of saying a list of things to do, and I said, read your Bibles every day, you can do that by yourself. Or if I said, pray more often, you can do that by yourself. But none of the do's that Paul gives us in verses 11 to 15, especially, and I think by implication, verses 16 to 18, can be done by yourself. They all require that somehow you relate to other people. And that points out, I think, one of the great truths of the New Testament that you can't grow in grace, you can't become more mature in Christ without one another. We need each other. We can't grow to Christian maturity apart from one another because so much of our growth is developed in and through our relationships. 
in the heartbreak of being let down and having to forgive those who've let us down, in the difficulty of having to walk alongside friends who are suffering under enormous burdens and discouragements, in the give and take of normal life where we defer to one another and seek to serve one another and forgive one another, all those other dynamics of living life in part of a church. We want to be a church that's shaped by the gospel. So what does that look like? What do we have to do to get there? And so Paul tells us, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, I believe this is what's called a bridge verse. And what that means is it serves as a bridge between the previous section and the next section. So the previous section, which we talked about last Sunday, was why we should encourage one another and what gospel truths we should encourage one another with. And then verse 11 bridges us over to the next section, which focuses more on the how of encouragement, or we might say the ways in which we build up one another. So let's see the first way to build up is respect, verses 12 and 13. The first way to build up is respect. That's, uh, actually it's the second blank in your outline, if you're using the outline. Um, so let's look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. There are six things in that one sentence. Respect, esteem, and love those who labor, lead, and help you to learn. And that's Paul's exhortation on how people and pastors are to relate. Now, a couple of days ago, somebody asked me, isn't it gonna be kind of awkward for you to preach about how we're supposed to respect and love you more? And I said, well, you know, I haven't figured that part out yet. So I'm gonna do a Paul thing because Paul's actually not talking about the Thessalonians respecting, esteeming, and loving him more. He's talking about them respecting, esteeming, and loving the leaders in that church more. You already respect and love me more than I deserve. So let me focus on your respect, esteem, and love for your elders and deacons. So let me give you the context. Apparently, there have been several errors going on in this congregation. There have been people who, because they thought Jesus was coming back very soon, have stopped working. And they just said, we're just not gonna go to work anymore because Jesus is coming back, what does it matter? And they have become a burden on the congregation because now other people have to feed them. Then there's others who are fearful about What's gonna to happen to their loved ones who've already died and Jesus hasn't come back yet? And then there's been a number of tricky pastoral problems. You can go back and read about that in chapters three and four. And the leaders in this church have had to confront people about those issues and about how they've responded to those issues. And apparently that hasn't gone over so well. And the result has been there's been folks in this congregation who are critical of their leaders. Now, I understand this is a scenario you can't even imagine.
maybe you can. But you may say, you know, this passage doesn't mention elders. And it doesn't use the word elder, and it doesn't use the word deacon. But notice three things that people who are talked about do here. Verse 12. They labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, notice that these people who you're called to respect, esteem, and love are to labor, they're over you, and they admonish you. What exactly are these leader jobs? Elders and deacons are called to labor among you. Ministry is hard work, believe it or not. And every one of those elders and deacons essentially already has your life. They have full-time jobs. Some of them have commutes. Some of them have travel requirements. Some of them have to work on weekends. And then we ask them, we add on all the church stuff. And so every time they visit or call or come to fix something at your house, this is above and beyond. This is time they're taking away from their home and their family. And I looked at kind of what they do. Now, every now and then we go through an officer nomination process. And uh, towards the end of that process, I meet with all the officer wives. And at least for the elders' wives, one of the things I tell the wives is, um, for your husbands, I now own all their Tuesday nights. And that sounds kind of mean, and it might be. Um, and what I say is I try to free them up as much as I can, but we have a business meeting once a month, we have a prayer meeting once a month, a lot of our visitation happens on Tuesday nights. Minimum, 50%, usually more, of their Tuesday nights are now taken. They're going to go out to do something with the church. Somewhere around 60%, two-thirds of all their Tuesday nights. And then I looked at the deacons, and they only meet once a month, so it may be a little bit better, but they get a lot of calls to come help, to meet with this person, to assist that person, to fix this thing. And so I kind of went back through the, all the deacon emails over the last year of how many times people had asked them. And now it's not always all the deacons responding to something, but two thirds of all the Saturdays in the last year, a deacon has been out helping somebody. Two thirds of all the Saturdays in the last year, at least one deacon has been out helping somebody. That means he hadn't been home. So just the time commitment alone, Paul says these folks work hard. He calls them laborers. That's the first thing. Second thing, it says they are over you. They're to guide, shepherd, lead, and admonish you. Now that word admonish means to hold the word of God before you and say the word of God calls you to this way of life. It calls us to do these things, and it calls us to not do those things. It's a word used in the context of exhortation. Often it's uh, thought of as sort of biblical counseling, not as sort of counseling as you go to see a therapist, but just kind of the, the good counsel that comes from 
elders to the people in the church. These are all things that elders and deacons do. Now Paul is talking about respecting them because these elders have uh, been involved in addressing some touchy situations in the church. And there's been some blowback. And people have been less than respectful towards them. And Paul says, respect them, esteem them, love them because they labor lead, they help you to learn. Paul is calling on the congregation to show a regard for the ministers, elders, and deacons the Lord has given to that congregation. Now you may not remember, but every time uh, we ordain new elders or deacons, you take vows to support them. And so you vowed, according to our book of church order, the following. Usually I ask this question, do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a ruling elder or deacon? And you promise to yield him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him. You have promised honor, encouragement, and obedience. And the reality is that's a promise people are prone to forget because it forces us to acknowledge that these leaders are over you in the Lord. They're supposed to be a spiritual authority in your life. Now, one of the beauties of the Presbyterian form of uh, church government is that there are checks and balances put in place to protect both the leaders and the congregation, one from the abuse of spiritual authority and the other from the lack of spiritual authority. Now, if you think about that, you realize our culture doesn't help you do that. This is not a culture that loves authority. You know, if we were gonna speak to our grandparents about the way this generation speaks about people in authority today, our grandparents would be horrified. It's a very different world 50 years ago to now from the way we speak about people in authority. So the culture isn't gonna help us here. We're gonna to have to be shaped by the gospel. And so Paul is calling on pastors and people to show respect and especially for the people to esteem the work of the elders. And to be honest, I'd be happy to just say amen and stop right there, uh, but there's more. So the second way to build up is peace. Look at the end of verse 13. So um, respect is the first aspect of a gospel-shaped church. The second one here uh, we read is be at peace among yourselves. Paul is telling us to pursue peace and unity within the church. Peace and unity don't just happen. They take commitment. And that actually is another thing that you vow if you're a communing member of Potomac Hills You've answered this question already. And that's question five of your membership vows. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? That's a great question. For those of you who haven't had opportunity to answer that yet, we're gonna have another new member class in October. We'll let you know the details uh, as we get closer. But that's a great question. It comes to us right from the Apostle Paul. This verse could be a proof text for it. Studying the purity and peace of the church is an important part of church membership. 
Because peace doesn't just happen. Unity doesn't just happen. It has to be cultivated, and it can't be cultivated unless we're committed to it, unless we value the peace among ourselves, and not just the lack of dissension, but the real spiritual unity that's to uh, exist in the church. And to be honest, there's not a whole lot to say here. I think we, most of us intuitively understand what it means to be at peace among ourselves. But putting it into practice is anything but intuitive. Think about the last year and a half. Pandemic management, racial reconciliation, sexuality debates, political polarization, all of which have brought division and dissension to our church. And I actually think we're doing better than a lot of churches. But Paul is telling us that peace isn't just a good way to live. It's critical to build up the church and it's a critical way to build up the people in the church. So how are we to live at peace among ourselves? Well, I think part of the answer comes in the next two ways to build up the church, which like peace are also part of the fruit of the spirit. And so verse 14, the third way uh, to build up one another is patience. The one thing they always tell you not to pray for, patience, because then you'll, God will answer that prayer and you'll need to exercise patience, which we don't actually like. But it's very interesting here in verse 14, Paul says we're to respond appropriately to different kinds of family members. You know, family can be pretty amazing. If you have three, four, five children, you begin to see very different personalities. Uh, Joanne and I have often wondered, they can't possibly all be ours. And it's like that in the church too. There's different kinds of people and Paul tells us we don't respond to everybody the same way. There are different ways to respond to different kinds of people. Look at verse 14. And we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let's just stop right there and look at the first one. Admonish the idle. Idle here is actually a military term referring to someone who's out of step with the other guys marching in the rank. Maybe he's uh, lagging or loafing, but whatever the case, he's out of step with everybody else. And if you've ever led troops marching, you know it's really obvious when there's one guy who's out of step. Everybody is supposed to be in step. And if some guy's out, everybody sees it. Now, in this case, in this church, this is probably referring to those people who have stopped working. And they're just hanging out waiting on Jesus. And they're not contributing to the needs of the church. They're relying on everyone else to cover for them and to take care of them. And what Paul says is you need to admonish them. This is the same language used uh, back in verse 12. So what are the leaders supposed to do? They're supposed to admonish us. They're supposed to hold up the word of God before us and say, this is the standard of the Christian life. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're not supposed to do. And so this person is to be exhorted with the word of God. Except here, Paul is saying that now, unlike back in verse 12, the whole congregation is supposed to be doing this. It's not just left up to the pastors and elders and deacons. All of us 
should be exhorting one another in this way. And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Notice he doesn't say, admonish the faint-hearted, but encourage the faint-hearted. Now, the faint-hearted here may refer to those people who are struggling because of their concerns about loved ones who've already died, missing out on the blessing of the second coming, so they're easily discouraged, they're faint-hearted. It may refer to people who are just timid by nature. Maybe they have a melancholy personality. There's a lot of us uh, who are easily discouraged. But notice Paul says the response is not to get tough on them, is not to get on their case. It's to encourage them and strengthen them. Now, you may go up to the idol and say, hey, it's time to get back to work. You're needed here. But to the faint-hearted, it's more like putting your arm around them and saying, hey, brother, it's going to be okay. God's got this. And then third, he says, help the weak. Help the weak. Now, again, the weak could refer to people who are spiritually immature, or it could refer to people who are struggling with immorality. You have to go back and look at the previous three chapters to see the sins that Paul's addressed and, and then draw some parallels. And we don't have time to do that, but the word weak has been applied to those two groups earlier in the book, the immature and the immoral. Well, what's the first response? It's not to kick them out. He says, no, help the weak. We're to come alongside them and help them to work through whatever their issues are. So that's three very different responses for three very different kinds of people. The weak are to be helped, the faint-hearted are to be encouraged, and those who are out of step are to be confronted, and we're all supposed to be doing that all the time with all of each other. In other words, we're to be looking out for each other. Paul's not telling us to be busybodies, but he's telling us to be concerned. We're to engage with each other on the important things in the Christian life. And then look at the last thing that Paul says, verse 14. Be patient with them all. Ouch. I think that's the hardest one of the bunch. You know, that can hurt. Maybe you've said this, we often excuse ourselves by saying, you know, I can be a little impatient. You know what we're really saying when we say that? We're, we're actually saying that we can be unloving. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. So when we're impatient, we're showing a lack of love. Patience is an expression of love. And notice again, all of these exhortations, all of these to-dos are an expression of love in the church. So how do we deal with one another? When we see someone out of line, do we just expect them to get back in line? No, we're patient because the Lord's patient with us. And so patience is this overarching command in dealing with each other. And Paul is teaching us how to respond appropriately to different kind of folks in the church and to each one of them. We're to be patient, and we're to demonstrate goodness. And that's the fourth way to build up one another is goodness. Verse 15. So here Paul tells us how to cultivate a community of forbearance. That's an old word we don't use much anymore. But uh, to have a community of forbearance and forgiveness and kindness. 
Look at his words. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's three parts to that sentence. First, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. We're not going to deal with each other through reprisal and revenge. Our standard operating procedure is not going to be getting even. It's going to be forbearance and even forgiveness. And obeying this means our church is to be characterized by forgiveness. And that means real forgiveness. And real forgiveness hurts. Real forgiveness is costly because we can really, really mess with one another. And because we get close to each other, kind of like family, we can hurt each other. And Paul says, when that happens, I want you to deal with one another, not by getting even, but by being forbearing. That means to show restraint and offer forgiveness instead. And then he says, always seek to do good to one another. Now he's talking about cultivating kindness towards one another by actually thinking, how can I do good to this person in my church? And this is kind of like, you know, being like Jesus. He refused to revile when he was reviled, and he came not to, uh, to be served, but to serve. In other words, the church is going to be so shaped by the gospel that we're going to look like we're going to act like Jesus acted towards us. And we're going to seek to do good to one another. And that would be good if you stopped there, but there's a little phrase got tacked on to the end. It says, and to everyone. It's not just doing good to one another. It's our standard posture towards the world. That's to bless them, to do good to them. That's important for us to keep in mind in this day and age because as evangelicals become a smaller and more hated minority in our culture, it will be our tendency to get mad at the secular culture and all they'll see is our anger. And so Paul says, no. Our attitude towards the culture is we want to do good to you. We want to do good to you. We want to be good to you. It doesn't matter whether you like us or not. We want to do good to you because Jesus did good to us when we didn't deserve it and we were rebelling against him. He died for us and he saved us by the shedding of his own blood and we want to reflect that goodness and kindness and love to those around us. This is the gospel shaping of the church. And that's what Paul's talking about. That's what we need to strive for. But it's really hard. And so there's one last to do for us here. And that's in the last few verses. And that's the fifth way to build up is prayer. Is prayer. Look at what Paul says, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now I'm pretty sure that most of you know what it means to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. But do you notice that phrase in verse 18? In all circumstances. The very fact that Paul has to say, give thanks in everything, give thanks in all circumstances, give thanks in every situation, give thanks all the time. It's a reminder that there are times and circumstances when it's hard to give thanks. It's difficult to pray. It's uncomfortable to rejoice. And if it's so difficult, 
Why should we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in every circumstance? Well, bottom line, because the Lord told you to. It's the Lord's will. I don't always know what the Lord's will is for your life. Sometimes I pretend I do, but I don't. And you can come to my, my office and I might not know who you're supposed to marry or what job you're supposed to do or where you're supposed to live. But I do know it's the Lord's will for you to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. It's his will. He comes right out and tells us. So for those reasons and not the circumstances, Paul calls us to live the Christian life by expressing it in prayer. Prayers of praise and rejoicing, prayers of intercession, prayers of thanksgiving. But these prayers aren't just for yourself. If verses 16 and 18 are read in the whole context of the book, of everything that came before and everything that comes after, then these prayers of rejoicing are for one another, praying regularly for one another, giving thanks for one another and for what God's doing in their life, regardless of their or your circumstances. So that's it. God's will for you is one of respect, peace, patience, goodness, and prayer. Sounds easy, right? You're going to get right on that. Actually, for some of us, it sounds a little intimidating. You may be thinking, Dr. Dave, can, can you give me just one of those? I mean, there's a lot of do's and don'ts in this passage, and you're right, there are. The Bible is full of commands for God's people to obey. But it's important that we realize that none of that are successes or are failures in keeping all of the do's and don'ts have any bearing on God's love for us in Christ. God does not love us more when we have a good day. And he doesn't love us less when we have a bad day. Christianity is not a message about our good days and our bad days. It's a message about what God has done for us in Christ. Not about what we do to make ourselves right with him. But what he has done to forgive us and accept us and save us and welcome us into his family. Hear me carefully. It is not do this and don't do that, and then God will love and forgive and accept and save you. It's the other way around. Because God has loved you and forgiven you and accepted you and saved you, then you can go do this and don't do that. We're not saved by our doing and don'ting. We're saved to a life of holiness away from our rebellion against God and against his revealed will in the Bible. And God saves us in order for us to be what he made us to be. And God loves us in order for us to do what he made us to do. And these do's and don'ts aren't supposed to be oppressive things that hang over our heads, intimidating us and condemning us. They just serve as guides for living a life that God's called us to live in Christ. As I was putting all this together, I was reading about a movie came out a few years ago, actually about 10 years ago. Um, it was called The Vow. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. I had never seen it before. 
But as I looked into it, it is a fascinating story uh, based on the real life account of a couple named Kim and Cricket Carpenter. In the movie, there's a couple named Leo and Paige, but in real life, it was Kim and Cricket. And what happened is they suffered a horrific car accident. It's at the very beginning of the book, very beginning of the movie, and she goes through the windshield. Now, I have been on the scene of someone who's gone through the windshield. I, some of you know I worked uh, as a police officer through seminary, and uh, going through the windshield is really, really bad. Um, being pulled back through the windshield is even worse. Um, those are not the scenes you want to be the first one uh, on the scene. Um, I was first one on one of those scenes once a guy had a bee came into his car and he was swatting at the bee and the road curved and he didn't and he went head on into a telephone pole. And the hardest thing was telling him not to move. He was halfway through the windshield and you had to keep him there because pulling him back and when you hit the windshield, your head's pretty hard. But when they pull you back, none of this is hard. And so basically I had to leave him there for the paramedics and everybody to get there to free him from that situation. So you had to prop him up. It's really messy. Um, and so this is a horrific, horrific accident. And she goes through the windshield and it causes amnesia. And uh, so the beginning of the movie, they're at the hospital. And she's in the bed and he's standing at the foot of the bed and there's this voiceover, it's, it's his voice. And it says, moments of impact help us find out who we are. Moments of impact help us find out who we are. And the rest of the movie details all these moments as he essentially is trying to win his wife back to himself. She has forgotten him totally. She's forgotten her life with him. She's forgotten all of their friends. And the movie tells the story of his heartbreaking faithfulness, trying to win back the love of his life in order to give her back what she's forgotten to return her memories. And I think our lives in these last days are a lot like that movie. In moments of spiritual impact, trials, sufferings, all the things that mark our lives, the difficulties, of the last few years, we can forget who we are. We can forget that we are in Christ. We can forget that we're part of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But you see, Christ is just like that faithful husband. When his bride forgets him, he spares no expense to help her remember, to help us remember, to bring us back to himself, to bring us back to our true home. And experiencing that together as believers united by Christ, united in Christ, who are going to be with Christ, is letting us know that the real moments of impact in our lives may not be the tragedies and the suffering, but those faithful moments when we show respect when we don't want to, when we choose to be at peace instead of trying to get our own way, when we exercise patience with those who we would really rather uh, they just get their act together, when we seek out opportunities to do good to people that we're struggling even to like. And when we pray for them before we pray for ourselves. 
And when we trust Christ to work those things into our lives, then we will build up one another and we'll build up his church. So pray for that. Take a moment to do that and after a little bit I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess we don't do these things very well. We would prefer to get our own way, not be at peace with one another. We'd rather get even than seek to do good. And being patient with all, well, patience is pretty hard. So Lord, we need you. We need you to come and work in us. We need you to come and change us. Grant that we may live like people called to build up one another by showing respect, by being at peace, by exercising patience, by doing good and through prayer. Work these things into our lives. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through all of these one another commands. Draw us ever closer to the one who displays them perfectly your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.